Welcome to the Biopractica Professional Podcast Series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica to offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Welcome everyone and thank you so much for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Roberta Barbulini and I'm the technical manager here at Biopractica. And I'm really excited today to be joined by Maria Schafflander. Now, Maria is a clinical nutritionist and she's based in Sydney, Australia. And she actually has a really busy clinical practice there and she's been working in Sydney since 2013, specialising in the treatment of digestive conditions, immune conditions and mental health conditions. And she does a lot of work on the interface between the gut-brain immune axis. And through her clinical work, Maria's also developed a really keen interest in environmental medicine, heavy metal toxicity, and the importance of minerals in helping to support optimal health. She uses a lot of hair mineral analysis with her patients and is a recognized expert in the utilization of this assessment tool. In fact, she's just launched a comprehensive online training course for practitioners on hair mineral analysis. And if you're wanting to find out more about that, it's just on her website, which is www.truefoodsnutrition.com.au. So thank you so much, Maria, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, I'm really excited to be talking about this, this, this topic of toxic metals and how they can affect mental health. But maybe before we do a bit of a dive into that particular topic, can you tell us, Maria, how you actually ended up specialising in the area of metal toxicity? Yeah, so I've got a bit of a you know, personal story um, that goes with it. So uh, a few years ago, probably about nine years ago now, I was um, using an old mercury thermometer. So, you know, those really old-fashioned glass thermometers that uh, sometimes are still sold in the chemist. You know, I've actually still seen them. But, they, yeah, they used to be around more in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I was uh, cleaning the bathroom and I dropped it. You know, I dropped the mm -hmm. thermometer. It's splattered into 5,000 little pieces because they're made of glass and all the little mercury uh, liquid balls uh, leaked out of it. So I don't know if uh, everyone who's listening to this has seen mercury in real life, you know, as an actual liquid. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe. It's, it's a liquidy looking gray metal and if you spill it it splits into a lot of these tiny little fragment balls mm. so what i did is i just kind of collected all the little balls into a big one with my hand so i was touching oh. it and then i vacuumed it uh, with a vacuum cleaner you know which was probably the absolute worst thing that you can do with mercury because it gets vaporized into the air <laughs> so um yeah i got quite a lot of mercury toxicity from that and wow. it really altered the way that my body functioned and that triggered me to start looking into things like hair analysis and detoxification protocols and genetics to understand you know why i was having such a hard time getting rid of it 
I mean, that's a really interesting story. And I mean, it's such a simple accident that can happen, you know, in any household. I mean, luckily, as you say now, those sort of mercury-based thermometers are a lot less common, but such a simple thing. And, and I can see how it would be a very powerful motivation for you to want to know more about toxic metals. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, a lot of people get their mercury toxicity from amalgams, um, mm. which I never had, but it's, you know, that's probably the most um, common toxic toxicity source for things like mercury where you know people are walking around with metal fillings in their mouth so it's extremely common so i mean obviously you know we've talked about mercury but what other metals or, or elements fit into this category of toxic metals what are we actually talking about here well we're mostly talking about what we call heavy metals so that's how they're classified in the periodic table and the most toxic ones are you know that most people are probably aware of are mercury cadmium aluminium um, lead arsenic uh, you know a whole bunch of metals beryllium so they're, they're probably the most commonly um, found the ones that are just listed and probably the most toxic uh, but also we have to include copper there as well even though it's not in the same category uh, but when copper is uh, at excessive levels or it's unbalanced it can act as a toxic metal in the body as well yeah and i think that's actually a really important point that you make because i know for example even iron as in you know we all need iron but if you have too much iron as in hemochromatosis as an example that can also act as a toxic metal in the body absolutely yeah so like with everything the body likes everything in a certain range you know glucose has to be in a certain range minerals have to be in a certain range so yeah it's pro-oxidative so i guess what happens with things like copper and iron um they are very uh easily oxidized in the presence of oxygen so that's basically like rusting you know if you put a piece of metal out it's going to rust uh, so that oxidative stress happens in the body when those metals are in excess and beyond oxidative stress, are there any other mechanisms via which these toxic metals can affect health and, and body function? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most um, common ways that they do affect is they slot into the enzyme systems where our good minerals are supposed to go. So, for example, you know, because their molecular properties are so similar, zinc, cadmium and mercury all have similar properties they're all in the same column in the periodic table mm. so if the body is deficient in zinc it will pick up mercury and cadmium fragments and put them into the places where zinc is meant to go to do its job uh, which is mostly the enzyme sites so they can really um, interrupt the way that a lot of our enzyme systems and also our nervous systems function so um, they can trigger a lot of things like um, nerve damage that can actually damage nerve fibers um, and also they just create a big toxic load for our liver to get rid of so there's multiple effects on the system that's why they're often also tricky to identify and test for um, because the symptoms are so varied with their presentation and I mean, I guess this may be a little bit of a silly question, but where do we actually get exposed to these toxic metals? Where are they coming into the body from? Yeah, well, that's really the common question that everyone asks, you know, when they see their test results is, you know, where did I get this from? Um, and I guess the two biggest sources are the environment and the in utero inheritance from our parents and grandparents. And um, yeah, I wanted to um, talk today, you know, at some stage about this intergenerational 
transfer of metals that I'm seeing, but, you know, we can get into that in a little while, but mostly it's from the environment. So direct exposure, some um, occupations have a lot of direct exposure to metals and other toxins. So for example, builders, farmers, plumbers, electricians, mechanics, um, they all have direct and repeated contact, you know, day to day with metals, um, welders, you know, anyone who works with them. Mm. Um, and also, you know, it, from in utero, so we do get a lot of transfer of metals through the placenta in utero. Um, they're the most two common things, amalgams that we mentioned, you know, dental amalgams, but also food, you know, a lot of um, our food has unfortunately become quite contaminated with heavy metals. So, you know, rice and chickens have a lot of arsenic, for example, um, there's been a lot of lead found in dark chocolate. Um, there's almost, you know, no food that hasn't really been affected in some way. I guess, I mean, you know, some exposure to these toxic metals would have been normal if you go back 100 or 200 years ago. I guess the issue often these days is that people are probably exposed to more than their body can cope with. How does our body normally process and remove these toxic metals? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the, I think the main issue is that, yeah, we, we've accumulated too many and we're also lacking the beneficial minerals that probably our ancestors had mm. in larger quantities, you know, because the soils have become depleted. So we don't have a buffer for these heavy metals. Um, and in terms of removing them, so the detox system has to be functioning quite well. So our liver has to process these metals and make them less toxic, you know, through phase one, uh, sorry, more toxic through phase one, and then clear them out in the phase two liver detox pathways, and then onto the kidneys and the bowel to get them out through the stool and the urine. But what's happening a lot of the time is we have so many loads, as you've said, you know, people have a lot of liver buckets, I call them, with um, a whole bunch of toxins like pesticides and alcohol and caffeine and, you know, drugs mm -hmm. and medications. So our liver can only handle that many buckets at a time. And I think that becomes a real problem for people, especially if they have genetics that are not very favourable to detoxification. And correct me if I'm wrong, Maria, but I believe that, you know, part of the detoxifying of toxic metals is really dependent on glutathione levels in the body and also dependent on levels of metallothionines, which I think are a zinc dependent system, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. So metallothionines are protein carriers and they're made up of um, cysteine, which is an amino acid and zinc. And they're very, very heavily dependent on zinc. So the biggest deficiency that I see in clinic, as I know lots and lots of practitioners do as well, is a zinc deficiency. Um, adults and children are presenting with that every single day. So it's that ability to detoxify through those carrying proteins that's really impacted 100%. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's really interesting when you put all those pieces of the puzzle together, because it's not only about increased exposure potentially through our foods, through our environment, but also, as you say, it's the body's already overwhelmed with other toxins. If our patients are zinc deficient, if they're deficient in those sulfur containing amino acids, they're also not clearing these toxic metals effectively. And I guess the end result is that accumulation that you would see in hair mineral analysis of these toxic metals. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, the biggest group of um, patients that's impacted by all this is um, the children. And mm. that's why, you know, we have such a, a strong increase in autism spectrum disorders and learning 
difficulties and sensory processing disorders and, you know, all these disorders that we now have names for, which didn't exist, you know, 30 to 50 years ago at all, um, largely, you know, to a large extent. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's the, the weaker the system, which, you know, the detox system in children is not as developed and the bigger the load that they inherit, um, it makes it really, really tricky for them to detoxify. And yeah, you can see it on hair analysis. With children, you can usually see it pretty quickly. With adults, it can take a little bit of time and some detox strategies, or at least just providing some zinc to start seeing those metals come up. I think that's actually a really important point because I mean, you know, I think sometimes when I was doing um, heavy metal detoxing in clinic myself, you know, you'd get that period of time where patients hair mineral analysis results would actually get worse and sometimes patients would freak out and you'd have to explain to them that it's because they're actually clearing the metals out i mean that's what we're seeing isn't it exactly yeah so they start appearing the metals start appearing on the hair and actually yeah it can be increasing in the beginning and what we have to remember is the hair is showing us what's being excreted out of the body you know in the three to four months leading up to the test so when I see those hair, um, those um, heavy metals come up on the hair with the second report or the third report, that's actually a really good sign. And yet you just have to explain that to the patient um, and, you know, so they can understand what the body's doing. But that's a really good sign that they're actually responding to your treatment. I wouldn't mind just touching on something that you, you mentioned very briefly earlier, Maria, which is this idea that there can be an intergenerational effect from toxic metal exposure. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about that side of things? Yeah, so this is just something I've been noticing, you know, because I've done thousands of hair mineral analyses and I have a lot of clients who are um, the whole family um, of clients, you know, intergenerational. So I would see the grandma and the grandpa, the children and then the grandchildren and uh, what I've been noticing is they all present really similarly so they might have different metabolic profiles and you know different um, mineral levels but the toxicity seems to be really consistent from generation to generation and what I've started doing is in my intake questionnaire uh, putting a very detailed section about employment and employment going back as far as they can remember. So ideally grandparents and great grandparents. And what a surprise, you know, all the most toxic children and adults that I see either had someone working in the mines or someone working at, um, you know, steelwork plants, or they were farmers or, you know, industries like furniture making, printing, um, really diverse industries, but 100% of the time, there was this intergenerational occupational exposure that was really easy to identify. And unfortunately what happens is, you know, heavy metals, they don't disappear from our bodies. So if your detox function is not going hundred percent, it's really, really difficult for them to actually just be eliminated on their own unless you do some detox therapies. So that's been a really interesting finding and I recommend, you know, if this is an area that's a focus in your clinic work to get really, really detailed with your history um, taking and also obviously asking about things like amalgams and amalgams in the parents and the grandparents and, you know, all types of exposure and also where these people used to live. So that's quite important as well. I have quite a few clients who um, grew up in 
different countries. So usually in the developing countries, like in South America or in some Asian countries where you know, pollution is probably more common and water is not being filtered as well as it probably is, um, you know, often in the Western world. So they have often come up really toxic, even just from visiting those countries on a yearly basis to see family and being exposed to those um, metals there. I think that's such a fascinating pattern to see, you know, the fact that, you know, what your grandparents were exposed to, what your parents were exposed to could affect you. And to be honest, I mean, there's some really interesting research coming out around the epigenetic effects of some of these toxins and how they can actually affect, you know, up to three generations later. So I'm sure it's an area that we'll actually start to see some research on in the coming years. Yeah, well, there's actually been some really interesting research on this by um, Dr. Pottinger, who studied the cats. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Pottinger's cats. And, you know, you can um, Google that. And there's a lot of stuff on that online where he basically provided different food and different environmental conditions to each generation of the cats. And, you know, because cats only live for, I don't know, 15 to 16 years he was able to document that. I mean, obviously, you know, with our current um, laws with um, animal treatment, that probably wasn't the most friendly experiment. But, you know, what he did show was that the food that was given and the environment that they were exposed to resulted in various health outcomes two or three generations down the track. And he was able to document it, um, you know, and it was uh, empirically analysed. So... Yeah, really interesting. I think um, you know these. They can just be some observational research. You know, we don't have to interfere with anything. We can just observe and ask the questions and do some basic testing like hair analysis and see what the effects are. Yeah, I mean, I think even your suggestion of just take a really, really comprehensive case history, not just of the patient, but as you say, of the generations that came before as well, because that could help point point me as a practitioner in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'd like to focus in a little bit more on those particular toxic metals that affect the nervous system and, and brain function in particular. So are there particular metals that are more neurotoxic than others? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, from the literature, we know that particularly mercury and cadmium and aluminium as well can be very neurotoxic. I mean, you know, they're all neurotoxic, but some of them have more affinity for the brain, mm. right? So uh, definitely mercury is uh, one of the primary storage sites for mercury once it's cleared out of the blood after initial exposure is the brain. You know, it's the liver and the brain. So unfortunately, the body stores mercury away in brain tissue so that it doesn't keep circulating through the blood and doing um, its damage on the, the rest of the body. Um, so what mercury actually does is it causes degeneration of our nerve fibers, particularly the peripheral sensory nerve fibers. So um, what you get is impacted motor conduction speed. So all those conditions where there's uh, you know neurological damage involved like multiple sclerosis, for example, or Parkinson's disease, uh, wherever there's um, motor conduction and myelin issues, there's a pretty high chance that there's going to be some mercury involved. Um, we all know that aluminium is um, found in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. Uh, so it actually blocks the action potential and the electrical discharge of nerve cells. So it reduces the, the system activity. 
um, and all metals block also our energy production. So, um, you know, there's a double whammy there with direct nerve damage and how the brain actually receives energy. So pretty scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of these effects, I assume they would take a long time to become apparent, you know, because often what we're talking about here is not acute aluminium poisoning or acute mercury poisoning. It's actually a chronic problem that's taken years to appear. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's why, you know, most people get diagnosed with those sort of neurological conditions later in life. You know, we do find uh, memory decline starts to happen kind of, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, that's probably still the most common time that people get diagnosed. But what happens is even before that, you can have effects on memory and cognition and uh, nerve function that won't be diagnosed as a disease, but it's still going to impact someone's day-to-day living. So a lot of people, you know, when you take their case history, they have some of these um, early symptoms, you know, they'll say, oh, my memory's really terrible these days. And, um, you know, yeah, sometimes get like pins and needles in my hands and feet. Mm. So you can have all these mild symptoms that are indicative of further toxicity. And I think, you know, the earlier people address this, ideally um, in children, (laughs) we should be addressing it in children, um, the less likely it's going to develop into a further disease state. So if I'm seeing a patient in clinic who maybe does have some of these like sort of memory problems or, you know, you, you mentioned pins and needles, like are there any other signs and symptoms that I could be looking for as a practitioner to help indicate that toxic metals might be a problem for this patient? Um, well, definitely. I think the biggest one, which is quite broad, but we do see this a lot, is energy issues. So if someone's coming in with fatigue and it's not sort of the obvious, you know, iron deficiency or sleep issues, if they've got that sort of chronic, you know, low level fatigue, which is uh, different to how they felt before, you know, that's usually a very obvious sign that something's not right because their energy production system is being impacted by something, which is usually the heavy metals. Um, Thyroid issues. So lead um, is a metal that interferes with iodine uptake by the thyroid. Um, And we know that mercury can have a really strong impact on the thyroid as well. I mean, they all can, of course. Um, So yeah, looking at just all of those global symptoms. So like fatigue, energy production, um, neurological symptoms we mentioned. Also bone and muscular issues. So just musculoskeletal symptoms like joint pain, bone pain. I mean, with lead, you can get pretty toxic levels of lead in the bone, which will present like that. Um, Osteoporosis, you know, that's probably in later stages. Um, and also just headaches, you know, headaches mm. is and migraines is a massive sign of things that are not getting detoxified. So, you know, whether it's hormonal or whether it's not, regardless of the, the time, it's always going to be about the liver not being able to detoxify. So they're the common things that I I look for. But to be honest, I now pretty much assume that every person has a level of toxicity of heavy metals. It's just a matter of how much and how it's affecting them. But every human walking around has a level of heavy metal toxicity today. Yeah, I think it's one of those unfortunate consequences of the modern industrialised world in a way, isn't it, where we're all exposed to some of these toxins every day. 
absolutely yeah and just you know the depletion of the soils and the quality of the food everyone's deficient in the beneficial minerals that block these metals so zinc magnesium selenium uh you know iron manganese all those metals um minerals that actually would normally block these heavy metals from getting absorbed into the system so i think that's the underlying issue as well so can I ask, you know, if you're trying to get a sense of how much toxic metal accumulation a patient might have, how low their beneficial minerals might be, do you mainly use hair mineral analysis for this? Yeah, always start with hair mineral analysis, you know, just because it's easy um, to administer. It's not an expensive test. Uh, you get a really um, clear metabolic picture from it as well. So how are the adrenals functioning? How's the thyroid functioning? So even if you don't have heavy metals showing up on your first hair analysis, you can see that, you know, if someone's thyroid is off and their adrenals are off, there's a pretty high chance they're not going to be detoxing anything because mm. their energy production is so impaired. Um, you can see their nutrient levels. So you can definitely see your zinc and copper and selenium, manganese, you know, all those important minerals. Um, but, you know, it's not the only test. I find it's a really good starting point. And then you put that together with your symptom picture and your history, so family history and personal history. So if there's been a lot of exposure intergenerationally to metals, what you can then do is um, do some further testing for heavy metals. So you can do stool testing. You can work with an integrative GP to order some um, DMSA uh, urine challenge testing where they're actually prescribed a chelating agent to trigger some detox. So it just depends on, you know, how severe the symptom picture is and what the, the history is. There's lots of ways to assess heavy metal toxicity. There's no one perfect test. Um, but I think the easiest starting point is a hair mineral analysis. Yeah, I mean, in my experience clinically, one of the benefits of hair mineral analysis is it would at least give me a sense of, you know, is this in the top three priorities or is it maybe a little bit further down the list of priorities? Because like you said, everyone's got some exposure, but is it the top of the list of our clinical, you know, therapeutic priorities? Exactly. Yeah. And whether they're also ready to start mm. detoxing, you know, if someone is really adrenally fatigued, which you can see on the hair, then you know, you're probably not going to start detoxing them right away. You know, you need to strengthen them up and replete some of those nutrients that are missing and support their adrenals, maybe make some lifestyle changes, support their thyroid health. So they actually have the energy in their body to start detoxifying and, you know, obviously supporting their gut to make sure that the elimination is happening correctly so it's not necessarily the first thing to do by any means but yeah exactly as you said you know you can prioritize that and see okay further down the track you know we will do some strengthening work in the beginning and then we can start looking at some detox for you yeah and i think you make a really important point there is that you know detoxification is actually an energy dependent process so if someone is low in energy you've kind of got to do that before you do all the detoxification yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of like, unfortunately, a really frustrating area of chicken and egg um, is they work a lot with adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue um, where, you know, you, you kind of, you, you have to start removing some of those metals so they can start making their ATP properly again. But you can't really do that without um, supporting that energy production process. Mm -hmm. So it's unfortunately can be a quite a frustratingly long period of time, you know, in adults particularly, 
um, the kids tend to respond really quickly to detox and do really, really well. But yeah, with adults, it can be a little bit of a process. So, I mean, speaking of treatment and timeframes, like how long do you normally find it takes with your adult patients to see some real benefit? Um, look, it really depends on how much work they're willing to put into it and I guess their investment in the detox process. So it's really tricky to put a time frame on it. Um, it what is required a lot of the time for heavy metal detox is a, diff, a whole range of different substances that need to be cycled through to make sure that you get every metal that you want to get and you get it most effectively, you know, you start moving it out effectively. So it does take a bit of time. Um, and usually I will start with just repleting those good minerals, you know, your zinc, magnesium, um, selenium, iodine. They're all really important to make sure that they're on board so that the body can actually detoxify you know and make glutathione and um yeah and then the amino acids as you mentioned before so that takes probably a few months and then you know to start actually excreting those metals and making sure that they're coming out um is probably another few months so look, it's a minimum of 12 months i would say for a proper detox yeah, but it depends okay. on you know, how deep you know people are willing to go so some people are willing to do coffee enemas they're willing to do saunas. So they can do a whole bunch of other non-ingestive therapies to help with the detox process. Um, yeah, I guess it just depends how much the person's willing to invest time and money wise. But I guess, you know, even just knowing that it's potentially, you know, a 12 month process, I think that helps to set very real, realistic expectations for patients. You know, they're not, we're not telling them that in two weeks we're going to fix it all basically. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, it's not, when you say the word detox, a lot of people have this idea that they're just going to drink some juices for a week and, <laughs> um, you know, they'll do a detox and they just haven't got the faintest idea of what's involved in actually, um, clearing out toxins that are, you know, they're not, um, water soluble, these toxins, they're all fat soluble. So, a lot of the time they're stored away in someone's fat tissue and we don't really even have access to them or they're stored in the brain, you know? So it's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of education involved around um, explaining the effects of these. And I guess, you know, the most obvious thing is they have to get their metal amalgams out of their mouth with a holistic mm. dentist who is trained to do that. So some people are, yeah, they just find that they're not prepared to do that. And that's usually a massive obstacle for them to be getting better. Uh, but yeah, you want to be removing the sources of toxicity. That's the most important starting point. So, I mean, you've mentioned a few things from a treatment point of view, like you've talked about repleting those good minerals, the zinc, the selenium, the iodine, the magnesium. You've talked about using those sulfur containing amino acids or glutathione. Like, are there any particular ingredients like herbal or nutritional ingredients that you really find work great for patients that do have toxic metal accumulation yeah well definitely there's several components to that process so you know you have to have your good minerals on board you have to have the amino acids um you need to have antioxidants so um, whether it's supporting glutathione or you know providing external antioxidants like n cysteine um, you know, curcumin, um, uh, a whole bunch of different antioxidants, depending on which metal you're dealing with. But then you also have to have a binder to actually pick up those fragments and carry them out successfully um, through the urine and the um, stool. 
So every detox, um, heavy metal detox program has to have a substance which acts as a binder. Um, and I really love uh, modified clyptolilinite as a binding ingredient. I also love modified citrus pectin. So they're probably the two big ones that I use, um, you know, interchangeably uh, to make sure that things are getting excreted properly. Um, so in the training course that I put together on hair analysis, I go through in detail each metal and identify which minerals and vitamins are blocked by that heavy metal that you have to replete. And then what are the best oral detox treatments for each one? So there's a few specific things, you know, for example, lead responds really well to kaolic garlic. That's a really important one. Um, you know, aluminium responds, responds really well to silica. Um, which right. most people are in. So really, yeah, there's a few specific things, but generally you need to have something that will displace the metal and something that's a binder to make sure that it's actually get, getting carried out and an antioxidant to minimise the damage of that process. That's a really nice kind of um, multi-part paradigm to use when you're working with, with toxic metals. I love that. And I guess, I mean, if we're looking at um, treatment perspectives and treatment options are there any particular dietary recommendations that you make with these patients um, who have too much toxic metal in their body yeah well definitely i mean the most obvious thing and i recommend this to all patients not just the obviously heavy metal toxic ones is to stop eating large fish you know so things mm. like tuna um swordfish um marlin there's a whole bunch of you know the really large fish tuna being the most obvious one uh, which is, you know, a lot of people are still eating that, which is just staggering <laughs> for me. Um, and, you know, it's been promoted as a healthy protein, but very sadly, that source of food is being so contaminated that it's just, it's not possible to eat that and not have mercury toxicity at some level. Um, so definitely eliminating that depending on what they come up with. So, you know, if someone's come up with arsenic, it would be really wise to reduce the consumption of rice and non-organic chicken because we know that those are big sources of arsenic. Um, but the, yeah, probably another major one is drinking water. Mm. So making sure that they've got a really high quality, either reverse osmosis or a similar system, which is actually filtering the water out of all that copper and lead, which a lot of people have going through the pipes. Um, so, yeah, just modifying your food intake and water intake to make sure that you're not taking in more of those toxins whilst you're starting to detox. Um, but in terms of limiting foods, I think the biggest ones are probably gluten and dairy, uh, particularly gluten, because the main thing that we want to do there is to make sure that they have good gut integrity. So if we're trying to push metals out through the bowel, we need to make sure that they're not recirculating through a very you know, permeable gut environment um, so leaky gut so um, that's probably a big thing and any obvious foods that are continuing that leaky gut situation is probably a really good idea to remove those yeah i mean that re reduction of that what do they call it the enterohepatic recirculation of toxins because it's almost like i used to explain to patients that if you have that leaky gut as quickly as we're clearing it out it's just leaking back in basically exactly yeah yeah and look, the binders help with that i think mm. the binders are great to ensure that that's minimized but yeah i mean most of these people are going to have some effects from these metals um, like we said on the nervous system or on their energy production so the better their gut functions generally the better they're going to feel throughout the whole process 
And what about from a lifestyle point of view, Maria? Are there any particular recommendations that you make for patients in that sense? Well, definitely if they're in an occupation or in an environment where they're still getting exposure to um, these metals or other chemicals, they have to pretty much remove themselves from that environment, which is really tricky. Um, you know, or at least they have to be wearing protective equipment really seriously. So I have this conversation, you know, lots of guys who are builders and they're like, nah, I can't wear gloves, you know, I can't do my job or the mask is in the way, it makes me hot. Um, you know, it's just simply not an option if they've accumulated a lot of heavy metals. And I think once people see the test results, they, they're quite convinced um, yeah. and they understand it better. So, you know, they have to either you know, quit that occupation or protect themselves in a really serious way. Um, and yeah, amalgams we mentioned, have to remove those. Um, and just making sure that they're getting enough sleep. I mean, during sleep is when the liver does a lot of its detox work and we do a lot of repair. So if someone's really um, having a disrupted sleep or they're constantly, you know, being woken up or something's going on with their sleep, they're not going to effectively recharge and detoxify during that time. So that's probably a really obvious one to work on. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, great tip because as you say, it's like if you're not getting the rest, like sleep isn't just this dead time. It's like you actually, your body uses it to replenish, recharge and, and you know, do things like detoxification. So that's a really good tip. Thank you. And um, maybe finally then, Maria, you know, obviously the whole area of toxic metals and what they do and how to clear them out of the body is quite a complicated area. If practitioners listening want to learn more, have you got any resources you can direct us to or any handy textbooks or websites that we can go to? Yeah, well, there's um, definitely, well, um, just for, you know, blatant self-promotion, my course um, covers a lot of this area and, Great. you know, gives you all the tools to identify the metals, how to talk to your patients about them, you know, how to remove them and what are the best supplements to use. So I think, if, you know, if you're using hair mineral analysis, I'd definitely start with that. Um, in terms of other sources, there's some really great speakers um, who have, you know, extensive information on their website. So Dr. Christopher Shade, um, who runs Quicksilver, a company in the US, is an expert on mercury. So he's the world expert on mercury. Um, so you can definitely check out his publications for that metal. Um, there's some great books also by local doctor, uh, Dr. Igor Tabritzian, mm -hmm. who's done a lot of work in hair analysis and heavy metals. And he's got a few books um, out that are really, really detailed and have really awesome graphic presentations. So it's really easy to show your patient. Uh, you know, it just really simplifies visually for them what's happening in their body. Um, yeah, but there's, um, I think the best way is just to make sure you also follow um, the companies that bring out really great products, you know, follow their information and, yeah. you know, they're likely to do a lot of the research and then just using your own judgment, what's applicable and what's not. But yeah, just keeping up to date with um, what's being released in our training. That's fantastic. And I mean, just again, to reiterate, if anyone is interested in that course that Maria was talking about, it's www.truefoodsnutrition.com.au, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Under Great. the education tab. Fantastic. And um, look, I have to say, Maria, that was a really good discussion. And thank you so much for your time and for sharing all those really handy hints and tips and clinical strategies with us. I've really enjoyed our conversation. 
Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this. So um, yeah, anytime. <laughs> and I also just wanted to say thank you so much to those of you who tuned in today. I hope you also found our conversation really interesting and useful and we'll look forward to tuning in again next week for another podcast with us here at Biopractica. To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.